Morning, church family. Well, Joe started a series in Mark. He left us at verse 39. We're going to continue to plow through. I have three accounts that we're going to deal with. The uh, paralyzed man, the man with leprosy, and the calling of Matthew. And that's a lot for me. I'm usually a tree from the forest type individual, and I like to focus on one thing at a time, but we're going to get through all three accounts. So let's let's read from Mark chapter 1, verse 40, and we're going to go to Mark 2, to verse 17. Mark says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Some of your translations might say was moved with compassion or moved with pity. The NIV says Jesus was indignant. We'll deal with that. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean, exclamation. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took up his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went outside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. But when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
All right, so we have a lot to take in. After reading these accounts, the healing of the leper, the paralytic, the calling of Matthew, you can kind of see a reoccurring theme. The greatest need of these men and the greatest concern that Jesus had for these men was their forgiveness. Forgiveness is found in all these accounts. In verse 41, chapter 1, he said, I am willing. In chapter 2, verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. He's willing to forgive. He desires to forgive. He has the authority to forgive. He came. I have come to call. He came on a mission to forgive. It's all about forgiveness. Today, we're not going to look so much at the benefits of forgiveness, though we'll, we'll name some. When I say benefits, I'm thinking like Psalm 32, blessed is the man whom the Lord forgives. There's, there's blessing, there's freedom, there's peace, there's rest. Those are true of an individual who has forgiveness. But today, I actually want to kind of explore Jesus' heart, the heart behind forgiveness and What's revealing in these passages is that the very affection and desires of Christ and exactly what qualifies him to do so, they're revealing in this, Jesus' desire to forgive. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus loves to forgive. So we're going to look at the first point in the chapter 1, the man with leprosy. My first point is that Jesus desires to forgive you. It's right from where he says, I am willing. Notice, though, that there's a straightforward mention of this man's condition. It's almost as if his identity was tied to his disease. Leprosy was a type of skin disease. It was highly contagious. It would land you outside of the community. You would be ostracized. You would be suffering mentally, emotionally, physically. It damaged your body, and then you would be outcast from society to kind of further describe leprosy and you can google it there's a whole bunch of graphic pictures out there but numbers um god strike numbers 12 where god strikes down Miriam. aaron prays for her and he said at the end of his prayer he says i pray that her flesh wouldn't be like like it's half eaten away people suffered from leprosy They were regarded as living corpses back then. So it was a pretty severe and devastating disease to have leprosy. Yet, here's this man, a leper. He's unclean, forsaken, comes to him on his knees and begs him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So we need to deal with Jesus' reaction to this and what is the motive behind this question. And this is where it gets a little difficult, and I'll take a little time to explain this. My translation, the NIV, says that Jesus was indignant. He was angry. In Luke and Matthew's account, his reaction isn't recorded. It's only in Mark. Whether it's of anger or of compassion is only found in Mark. So there's a little variation in the Greek texts here, the older manuscripts and in the newer Manuscripts. I'm no Greek scholar, but I will agree with one man. His name is Bill Mounts. And uh, he goes on to argue about the textual criticism and the internal evidence that this book has where the older manuscripts that translate it indignant or angry 
um, have a legitimate case for it. Um, he talks about how um, this root word is also found in the book, indignant, um, namely in Mark 3, 5, where he says he looked around at them in anger and he was deeply distressed at the stubborn hearts. So this word is found elsewhere in this book. So we're going to have to deal with that. Good scholars differ, but we'll see in a moment, while it really doesn't matter whether he was moved to compassion or whether he was moved uh, with anger, because even in his anger, there's compassion. So if Jesus was indignant, if he was angry, what was the cause then? Was Jesus angry at the horrific effects of sin, knowing that what the curse brought with death, destruction, decay, disease, knowing that in the mind of God, the plan of God, none of this was ever in the original intent, knowing that man was created to glorify and enjoy God as it was in Eden, and to see the effects of the fall in the moment, looking at this leper, to see those effects, perhaps, you know, the dying you shall die in Genesis, he sees the effects of the curse, and he's moved with anger towards it. certainly possible. He could have seen all that was broken, and it could have rushed upon his mind. You say, that sounds a little emotional of Jesus. Well, Jesus is emotional. He's allowed to be. He's human. (laughs) He cried over his friend's death. Earlier on this week, my daughter asked, did Jesus ever laugh? Absolutely. He laughed. He was fully human. So it doesn't take me by surprise that Jesus could feel anger in the moment. God is certainly grieved over it, and even creation groans itself. All right. So there's another view. In my view, as well as others, was Jesus upset by the way the man asked it? If you are willing. Now, I don't think He was coming across as if he was being polite, as if Jesus misunderstood him, if you are willing. I don't think there was a communication breakdown. I think rather Jesus probably sensed some doubt in this man's question, all right? As if he doubted the actual and personal concern, if you are willing. Um, As if the leper was asking, do you even care to? If you're going to translate it indignant, you have to deal with it. So is Jesus' indignation? It would seem to come more from this man's accusation. I'm here. Do you see me suffering? Do you even care? Because no one else does. He probably never saw it in his life, certainly not from the Pharisees. Another reason Jesus could have been indignant. So in essence, it seems like this man came with doubt mixed with his request you say but he came begging it looks like he had a great act of faith right but there's other counts in the gospels that you have to deal with there was the rich man who came begging who asked a very sincere deep question towards jesus the rich man what do i have to do to gain eternal life sounds sincere right But Jesus put his finger on his idolatry 
And at the end of that story, you find out that this man loved his money more than he was concerned about eternal life. And he walked away sad. So we're complex beings, right? We come to God in in different ways with ulterior motives. But we have to honestly deal with what the text says. Jesus was indignant. Um, So how does he respond? How does he respond? Does he show his anger? I don't know, but he feels it. All we know that is in the next phrase, Jesus says, I am willing. As if Jesus is saying, think what you may, but I am who I am. Be clean. This is who I am. I come to cleanse and to restore, and it's not because of your great faith. It's not because of your doubt. It's because I'm willing What is clear, though, is that this man's cleansing and depended more on the will and the power of God and not so much of this man's faith. Nevertheless, though, to question the very heart of a loving God would have probably brought a sense of displeasure to Jesus at that time. There was indignation. Um, of course he loves them would be his expression. I am willing. There seems like a tone of anger. Yes, God loves you. It's kind of like a parent who needs to like forcefully express their love and commitment at times. Of course I love you. Of course I'm there. Get it through your thick skull. You know, I don't think Jesus would say it like that, but there may be times where we have to. So there's indignation. You see, it gets a little bit more complex when you start analyzing it. So we've got to get this, though, that Jesus is willing to cleanse and forgive. He's free to make that decision, and he made it because he simply loves to forgive. His heart longs to forgive and restore so many promises. If anyone comes to me, I will in no way cast out. I love where Isaiah chapter 55, where he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he'll have mercy on them and to our God. And then it says, For he will freely pardon. He freely pardons? Yeah. Why? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways my ways. We can't even imagine how freely God forgives. It's unthinkable. It's above our ways. He freely pardons, and all I need to know is that he's not like me. He freely pardons. This is why Jesus came, though. He died on our behalf to become curse for us, to be sin for us, to enact the promises and covenant that God made. He drew near. This man came to Jesus, and Jesus reaches out to him. This is probably for in a very long time, maybe ever, that this man experienced actual physical touch. And Jesus approaches him. He touches the leper's defilement, which was totally contrary to ritual purity, and he's not affected by the man's disease. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. 
I hope you see that. Where we bring our guilt, our shame, all that is vile, perverse, twisted, our inward disease, we bring it to Jesus and we look to the cross and we're healed. Jesus reaches out. We bring all the perversion, all that is repulsive, and what do we find? We find a willing Savior, a willing Savior in the end. And that's true also of a Christian, what a Christian has to go through. He finds over and over and over again a willful, a willing Savior who just forgives again and again, even when we question God at times. I just want to say, Christian, there will be times when you cannot make sense of your situation and when you struggle to, to take God's word at face value. You struggle with it. You see a promise and there's mixed emotion in it. And sometimes we just come to God with doubt. We wrongfully think low of him and we come to him weak and sinful And I just want to remind you to not let any of that push you away from God. I am willing, he says, even in those times. We can go to God in our leprous condition. As we come to Christ for salvation, and even as Christians, we're full of defects and weakness, and God puts up with us. He knows your hearts and needs better than you do, so you can trust him we often find ourselves, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's good (laughs) self-assessment. Don't be surprised when doubt comes your way in life. We really don't know ourselves as, as we think we do. And sometimes God has to put us through things. Bottom line, though, don't trust in your heart. Don't trust in your own understanding and commit your way to him. So, It didn't take long for this man to be convinced, though, of who Jesus was. It spoke, it happened, he was healed right at the moment. His body welcomed the healing, his heart gladly received the command to be cleaned, and there was an immediate transformation. I just pray today, Tri-County, I pray that you hear the words of Jesus, that you would know his heart, know his thoughts, be clean. He can do that. My second point, Jesus has authority to forgive you. And I'd like to step back for a second and just kind of examine the context because these next two events uh, begin uh, where the Jews, Jesus usually performs a miracle, says something, does something, the Jews react, and you see this constant dialogue beginning to happen. It happens in all three three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they all set forth that as Jesus goes in the power of the Spirit and the report of Jesus is spreading, the Pharisees start getting more agitated and they start throwing out their criticisms and accusations. And you see a growing hostility among the Jews. So this is the beginning of where that starts in Mark. There's this dialogue and interchange And with the healing of the paralyzed man, Jesus reads their thoughts and he confronts them. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, 
your, son, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And basically, they don't want to equate Jesus' power to heal with God's power to forgive. Those are things that belong to God. With the calling of Levi, the Pharisees had a self-righteous question towards the disciples. Why do you eat with those people? And their basic problem is they don't see their sin right. So as Jesus confronts the, the Jews' questionings, it becomes apparent that they don't want forgiveness. They don't care who gets it. They think that Jesus blasphemes and they trust in their own goodness. And Jesus responds to both of these situations, says, I have authority. I am the son of man. And he says, I'm like a doctor who's around sick people. And to me, it's just like the Old Testament where God is saying, I am your God. I have the authority. I am your healer. And this is the point of Mark that God was in Jesus. Jesus had the right, the authority to claim such things. He's the one who's fulfilling God's promise of the Old Testament as the suffering servant and the Davidic Messiah. He's Lord, he's Son. So that's the context. You see the interchange in the dialogue. I've already said that Jesus desires to forgive, and now with the account of the paralyzed man, he has the authority to forgive. So we'll quickly dive into this little section with the paralyzed man. So this account tells of four men trying to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus who can heal him. And the text says that it was totally packed there, even outside the door. Back then, homes were built in such a way that they had stairs on the side of the house that you can get up to the roof. It was typically a flat roof. It was made of clay. There was wooden beams crossed through and uh, maybe some tile on top, some type of insulation underneath that. Uh, So you have to imagine that these men probably navigated this home, knew where Jesus was teaching, climbed on the roof, and then dug there. And there's probably stuff fallen from the ceiling. It would have caused a stir and a pause in in the teaching, right? So when this man's lowered, the text says Jesus addresses him as son, something endearing. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And this guy and his friends seem to come with a lot more faith, if I could say, than, a, than the man with leprosy. Oh, but Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But to make a case in point, he's gonna further it. He decides to make a point to the Pharisees concerning who he was. But the spiritual need he addressed first Your sins are forgiven. So the spiritual aspect was much more important than the physical. It's funny how the text says that they were sitting there, verse 6. Some of the teachers were sitting there. Everyone else is standing. It's jam-packed, yet the Jews are up front sitting. You can tell they're kind of like the self-presumed prominent ones of the day. And Jesus senses their collective reasoning. Forgiveness of sin? Only God can do that. Yeah. 
So Jesus was ready to further their understanding. Which is easier to say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? Again, two impossible things, so a light bulb should have gone off. And Jesus tells them the point of such miracles. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority. And then this man puts on a new pair of whatever, some sandals, (laughs) and gets to walk away completely restored. Everyone sees it, and they praise God. Jesus has authority to forgive. He's already proven that he had authority over sickness, disease, and demons, but it's to get to this point. I want you to know that I have authority. Now, I want to deal with the term son of man. Um, This is interesting that Jesus uses it here. It's certainly important when you consider Paul's interpretation of the second Adam. Uh, The Son of Man can just generally refer to being human. He's the Son of Man. Uh, But it's important to know that he was man. He was fashioned just like us. He was the second Adam. There was an official representative of, of man who brought sin and death And just like that one man brought that and it entered into the world, so through one man, life came, eternal life came. It's important to be qualified to be the second Adam. Jesus pioneered humanity the way it was supposed to be. He was the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He had to be a high priest who can sympathize with us, one who was tempted in every way like us, who can feel what we feel, who had to learn obedience. It's certainly important to know that he was the son of man. But the term son of man also has a historical sense to it. It was meant to convey something much more. And that's found in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. And uh, this is my dumb humor coming out, but when the Jews... um, heard Jesus say son of man I kind of think of it like a a meme that I sent to my friend earlier on this week you know those dumb memes typically my dumb humor means that I'm sending um, animals with with a a quote on the bottom so there's this vision with a a dog panting gasping looking very happy and then all of a sudden he goes what and on the bottom line says what you know so my friend gives me some Uh, very drastic news and I send them that meme so anyways if you can envision the Jews having this type of reaction they would have picked up on the term son of man this was Daniel 7 this was a very exalted figure let me read it to you in Daniel 7 he was going to ride on the clouds this son of man was going to have divinity he was given from the ancient of days all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when the Jews heard that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man, he was claiming to be sitting on the throne of David, one who is going to come as an heir of David, have an everlasting kingdom as promised in Second Samuel. 
he was going to come as a king and as a judge. So that would have pricked their ears up. This man blasphemes. But here, the son of man, what does he do? He says, I have authority to not just come as judge and king, but I have authority to forgive. Someone who's going to be, as in Isaiah, pierced for your transgression, crushed for our iniquities. He was going to be the humble servant, the son of man, as in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man was going to die in our place. The coming judge of this world offered his body once for sin to bring us to God. So I want you to see that this, this man, Jesus, who has authority to forgive is the son of man in a general sense and the son of man in a historical sense. He's the prophet. No other man, no other religion, no amount of good works on your behalf can cleanse or forgive you. Nothing can save you. Forgiveness is only found in this man who has that type of authority. And you have got to be convinced from the scriptures, as it is in Acts 4, where he says, forgiveness or salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one man who has this authority to forgive sin. And he proved it over and over again with the power to heal. Just a quick thought to end my second point, the application. How should, as a Christian, say you've been saved for a year, 10 years, 40 years, how should knowing Christ's authority to forgive help you? I had to chew on this for a minute, and there's nothing like shocking about this, but it should help in this. There is simply no other plea in life for you to be near to God. When you fail and when you sin or when sins gain some ground in your life, you are saying the same thing over and over and over. God, have mercy on me in the name of Jesus, on his person and work, his name, his authority, that is my only plea. It's my plea at salvation. It's the plea when you enter through the pearly gates, right, as we just sang. It's the only thing. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that causes us to stand. That's all we got. We get to boast in Jesus. My third point, let me just recap here. Mark 141, Jesus says, I'm willing. Jesus says, I have authority. And the third point, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call. Jesus came on a mission to forgive you. That's why he came. So we have a tax collector, some Jews, and Jesus. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew holds a goodbye retirement party from tax collecting. He invites co-workers and friends and people who fall under the category of sinners. 
We were laughing earlier this week, Joe and I. Sinners who actually sin. Yes, that's who's at Matthew's party. Sinning sinners. The Jews don't like everything that's going on inside that house, at Matthew's house. And we're left with another revealing question of who the Jews thought Jesus should be. Jesus responds to their question and tells them who he actually is and what he should be doing. So, Matthew is a tax collector. Jesus calls him while he's serving in the booth. And tax collectors back in the day were not your career of choice. You weren't going to say as a kid, I want to grow up and be a tax collector. You'd get thrown out of class. These people were scandalous. They were dishonest. They uh, cheated people. They skimmed off the top. They were greedy. They made a lot of money. They were wealthy people. They would tax the poor more. They would take bribes from the rich. And it was very, uh, the treachery of it all, the scandalousness of it all was Matthew was a Jew and he was tax collecting for the Romans and he was taking from Jewish people. And as a result, you would be banned from the temple. You would be a social outcast. Um, So that's not the career you want, right? Um, But this is Matthew. And this is who Jesus goes and calls while in the tax-collecting booth. And then you have the Pharisees. They're the ones who are appalled at Jesus' message, how it applies to them and people who are not like them. They think they're the healthy ones. And Jesus overhears their comments and says, what I'm doing here at this house is very much what a physician does. He's around sick people. Doctors are around sick people. Matthew was one of the sick, and the Jews thought they were healthy. They were the so-called righteous ones, and they had this elitist religious attitude. We're all good. We have the law. We have Abraham. We don't need anything. Why is Jesus, this Jewish king and this Jewish Messiah, sitting with those people inside that house? Why is he over there? And it's evident from the passage that they didn't, They weren't so concerned about his message, were they? (laughs) They didn't care about forgiveness. And so there they are. It's kind of, they got caught red-handed. They're just picketing outside of Matthew's house. And for centuries, this is the prevalent attitude of the Jews. They couldn't see any defect in, in themselves. And they couldn't see any good in those who weren't like them. In a word, they were self-righteous. And Jesus wanted to reverse their thinking. It's not the healthy or those who think they are who need a doctor. It's the sick people. I have come for them, spiritually sick people. That is why Jesus came. Why do you sit with those people, they ask. Just think about it. Jesus in his mind when he hears the question. That is exactly why I'm here. I am sitting here with sick people. I am going to take on the sin of the world, their sin. Those inside of the house, those outside of the house. The ones who are inside of the house, they love money, they love pleasure. The ones who are outside of the house, those who think they were saved by their own religion and goodness, their, hip, their, their hypocrisy and prideful sin, I've come for everybody's sin, Jesus says. I've come for the sick. 
He came only for the sick. And so it's very telling that unless we see ourselves as spiritually sick, we may never see our need for Jesus to be our doctor. Only those who know they have a deep-seated heart sickness are the ones who are going to be cured. So the visit to this doctor isn't just to get bandaged up and some wounds covered up. This visit is for spiritual heart surgery, and that's what Jesus promises, a new heart, a new life, and that was his mission. I want to take three quick applicational points, and we're going to end it with this. I want to consider the compassion of Jesus towards this sinful man. Consider the fact that Matthew was a Jew who grew up with truth, probably memorized much of the Pentateuch, but he rejected it. His profession made him an outcast and a traitor. He was a backstabbing thief, but Jesus went to him and offered him grace. There may be people here who have grown up with truth, but have walked away from it much of their life. And I want you to look at the compassion that Jesus has on this man and the same compassion that he can have on you. He comes for sick people. Think also about how Matthew lived and worked in Capernaum. Jesus spent much of his time there. He was acquainted with Jesus' teaching and preaching, so he got some time to chew on it. He got some time to count the cost And after Jesus spoke to him and said, follow me, there was a time where Matthew had to make a clean break. And I think it's in Luke where he says, Matthew got up, he left everything, and he followed him. He turned to Jesus. For you who have been hanging on the fence and who have been counting the cost, considering whether it's worth to follow Jesus, I want you to think where Matthew's at and where Jesus called him. You need to get up and leave everything and follow him. The best part of it is you don't have to wait for grace. He got right up and did it. The final thing is I'd like to consider how Jesus calls sinners to be disciple makers. Matthew went straight from the toll booth to evangelizing the lost. He invites sinners into his home. He connects with people by throwing a party. He gives people a chance to meet Jesus face to face right away. So being a follower of Jesus is being a disciple maker for Jesus. He points others to Christ. Look at his example of hospitality. Look who's attending the party. Friends, coworkers, sinners. And I just plead with you to Make your home open for the gospel's sake. Have people over. Make yourself available. Your home might not be suited for it, so you can go to the coffee shop or whatever you want to do, but just make yourself available. When Jesus had compassion on this man, this man couldn't help but to have compassion on others. He was used right away. So as we continue studying Mark in conclusion... I want you to think about how Mark is writing to his audience, those in Babylon, a reference to Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He wants Christians there to be gripped, 
over and over and again by all the accounts that he lays out that forgiveness is offered by the messianic king and the king's heartbeat is to restore and to save and to forgive. That's the flow throughout this book. We have an awesome, merciful savior and he saves us to the uttermost and he's worth following. He desires to forgive. He can do it. He has the authority to do it by the spoken word and by the cross. He had that mindset from the very get-go. Simply put, Jesus loves to forgive. I hope it's a good reminder. I hope you chew on it throughout the week. Jesus loves to forgive. He's glorified by it. There's just simply no one like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us of your son's heart, of your heart. You desire to forgive. You're the one who laid down your life. Lord, who is a pardoning God like you? You freely pardon. And we just offer our praise to you. We're thankful. We're indebted. We owe our lives. We want to follow you. We thank you for the promise of new life, the covenant that you made with people to forgive sin, to seal them with your spirit. And we thank you that you're the one who devised it Our thoughts are not like yours. You do it so willingly, so freely, and out of love. This is your plan and your doing, and we love you for it. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.